the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. You follow us at danproftshow.com, podcast of the program. You can also get podcasts at uh, Google, at uh, excuse me, Spotify and iTunes. In addition, on social media, you can track us at, at Dan Prof Show. Contact trace us, to borrow a phrase. Yesterday, we talked about uh, Elon Musk uh, reprising the role of Tank Man in opposition to the California shutdown, announcing he was reopening his one production facility for Tesla in, uh, in the United States, and that's in Fremont, California. And we also talked about uh, our shared love of aviation and his bizarre child's name, but mostly about his defiant reopening and um, whether or not uh, he is a hero or a villain in this story, which drew an F.U. from Lorena Gonzalez, a California assemblywoman, the one who introduced the anti-gig economy legislation that's destroying employment opportunities in companies like Uber and Lyft in California. Mad Dog Jim Cramer had uh, this comment on uh, Elon Musk's tank man moment. He is correct in thinking that the whole uh, thrust of this country is to put people to work. Uh, why do we presume that he can't do it in a fashion that's safe? I do not know. I mean, uh, I want this is not Tyson. OK, this is not Smithfield. And why do we think this man necessarily is going to put people at risk? When I look at, at, at my Twitter column, there are two kinds of people. There are people who think that he's the greatest and people who think that he's willing to sacrifice people on the, on the order of profit. Now, he may not be as, uh, as, say, as concerned about COVID as every person in the world, but there's no indication that he's willing to sacrifice people's lives. Why can't they make a deal? I don't understand this. It's time to open up that factory, and I think he's dead right. I don't want to violate the law, but come on. This is... Do, not, do, do we not want this factory open? Secretary Mnuchin wants it open. Against that backdrop, uh, Washington Post story, economists project more than 100,000 small businesses have shut permanently since the pandemic escalated in March, according to a study by researchers at uh, University of Illinois, Harvard Business School, Harvard, and the University of Chicago. The latest data suggests at least 2% of small businesses are gone. This from a survey conducted May 9th to the 11th. You're fundamentally altering the landscape of economic opportunity in this country. That is no small thing. For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined again by our friend Steve Moore, Wall Street Journal columnist uh, and um, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, what do you think about uh, Elon Musk and uh, Jim Cramer's review of uh, Elon Musk give people their GD freedom back? Uh, look, I think that Elon Musk should move to a very business-friendly state, maybe like Illinois. Yeah, right. He's thinking more <laughs> like Nevada or Texas, I understand. 
I mean, look, this is a continuation. What you're seeing is we've talked for years on this show about the migration of businesses and economic activity out of blue states like Illinois and California and New York to red states like Tennessee and Texas and Florida. And it's indisputable that this is happening. And now it's going to accelerate. Look, I believe in federalism. I believe people of Illinois deserve the government that they want. I really do. Now, the fact that you've got a dingbat governor, and uh, by the way, that's the most absurd study I ever heard that you just cited. 2% of small businesses, it's not 2%, it's probably 32%. About one in three small businesses will fail if we don't get this economy open quickly. There's no question about it. I mean, I get calls every day from people. I mean, they say 100,000 small businesses are going to fail. Millions of small businesses are going to fail. That study is ridiculous. Elon Musk should just do what he's threatening to do, move out of California with its 12% income tax, with its anti-business policies, and move to Texas. And he can you know, produce those cars, and he can do it at probably saving one-third the cost of doing so. And so these states, like California and Illinois, that are staying shut down, they're doing it at their own economic peril and, and uh, impoverishing the, their own citizens. I want to uh, get to the uh, so-called HEROES Act Nancy Pelosi just introduced in the House, $3 trillion more in spending. And my concern is not that what she presented will pass in anything resembling its form as presented, but that Republicans may meet her 20 percent of the way on this monstrosity, and that would be bad news. I think you're right, Dan. Look, Democrats may be evil, but they're not stupid. And they realize, hey, we'll ask for $3 trillion, and then we'll bargain with the Republican leaders, and we'll end up with $2 trillion. And the Republicans say, see, we saved a trillion dollars. The Republicans have to say hell no to this. They have to say not a dime more spending. We've already spent $3 trillion. We ought to do a payroll tax suspension. Just take away the payroll tax for people. If you want to spend money, put the money right in the hands of the people, the workers and the businesses. Why give it to politicians and why give it to mayors and governors? But this is a big moment. It really is. Republicans have to be totally contemptuous of this. They have to attack it. Trump has to say we're going to go in a completely opposite direction. And in fact, if I were Trump, I would not negotiate with Pelosi. I'd simply lay this out to the American people and say, these are the choices we're going to have in the fall, folks. If you want the left, they're going to spend us into oblivion. Or if you want a pro-business policy that gets Americans back on the job, here's our agenda. And just lay it out. I think Pelosi really overplayed her hand yesterday. Well, if you get that uh, sort of response, in fact, I would even refine that response a little bit uh, more and make it sort of a Henry Hazlitt moment for Republicans, a, a simple economics yep. lesson, which is, look, they believe that America's recovery comes through government. We right. believe that America's yep. recovery comes through energizing the private sector right. and the job creators. That's the choice. And so we're going to pursue so policies consistent with that philosophy. And they're going to say, give money, get, you know, everything is all, and the press is all about the lost revenues of state and local governments and the, the problems that state and local governments have. Too bad, so sad. State and local governments have seen no unemployment, and the yeah. private sector economy has seen 33 million first-time unemployment fathers in the last six weeks. Where do you think our priority should be? This is not complicated. So, Dan, you, you, you know, write that down. I mean, that's exactly the speech that Donald Trump should. And you, you wrote it. You said it very eloquently. I couldn't even say it as well as that. We believe in the free enterprise system. We believe in private workers or private businesses and entrepreneurs who build our economy. They believe the way to build our economy is by massively growing the government. And that is a total conflict of visions. And God forbid the American people actually want that alternative. I, sometimes I wonder. Uh, but the fact is, that is the ideological difference that has emerged 
between these two parties. And uh, I, I, I'm going to get the tape of what you just said and write it all down because it's absolutely perfect. And that's exactly what Mitch McConnell should be saying and what Donald Trump should be saying and Larry Kudlow should be saying. And all of these Republicans should just say, this is the biggest sham ever. And if we pass this, we're going to bankrupt our country and we're going to destroy every business in America. Why is it that they care more about you know, the local governments than they do the businesses that fund the local governments? Um, hey, let me ask you this. Are you worried at all about uh, deflationary pressure on the economy and the prospect of that a deflationary spiral is a threat? It's funny you should ask that. I just wrote my column on that. I think the big evil in the economy, other than Nancy Pelosi's massive spending, Binge. Just to be fair, up till now, the, the spending binge has been bipartisan, right? I mean, so I don't want to, I mean, up until now, every bill has passed almost unanimously with every Republican and Democrat. What I'm saying is this is where the Republicans have to draw the line and say no more. Now, deflation is here. It is severe. It is the other big problem with the economy. And this means the Fed needs to put more dollar liquidity in the, in the economy because prices fell again last month. This is the third month in a row. Prices have been falling. Commodity prices are down about 35% this year. That's enormous. That's why you know oil producers are going out of business. Farmers are struggling. Yeah, we need to, and the, people are probably wondering, gee, is he more crazy? I mean, all the Fed has been doing is putting dollar liquidity in the economy. How, and how can we have falling prices? Number one, we just do, it's a fact. But number two, the reason we have these falling prices, anytime you have a crisis like this, the first thing everyone around the world does is they rush to dollars. And that's what they've been doing in the, in the trillions of dollars. People all over the world are demanding dollars. They're cashing out their bank accounts. They want dollars, dollars, dollars. And that has caused a rush on the dollar. And if the Fed doesn't accommodate that by print, you know, putting dollars out there, then you're going to have a deflation that's going to make things much worse. People forget. But one of the major causes of the or what made the Great Depression so severe and so longstanding, in addition to the New Deal, which obviously was a massive failure, was that we had deflation in that environment. But deflation shrinks the economy. So, yes, you're exactly right, Dan. It's a big problem. So and, and just so, so so people get this, uh, not steeped in. Uh, so uh, prices decline, lower production, lower wages and demand. Further decreases in price level, you create this positive feedback loop that feeds on itself. That's exactly right. And what happens is when you get a shrinkage of demand of uh, prices, what happens is that real wages actually rise when you have a prices fall. And that means labor is more expensive. So what do what do employers do? They have to lay off workers. So that's the negative cycle. Uh, that you create with deflation. What we want as free marketeers is a stable dollar. I don't want inflation. I lived through the 70s, but I don't want deflation either. I want the dollar to remain stable, and it's not right now. It's falling at a really, I mean, the dollar is rising, but the but the prices in the economy are falling, and that's really killing businesses. And the other thing it does, uh, which is a big problem, is increase the real value of debt. Yep, yep, yep. Steve Moore, economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, author of Trumponomics. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. The rule of law, President and former President Obama lamenting the dismissal of charges against General Flynn as an abrogation of the rule of law. Attorney General Barr saying that uh, his decision was based decision to drop charges against General Flynn for lying to the FBI 
was rooted in justice and the rule of law. Judge Emmett Sullivan deciding yesterday that he is uh, going to provide leave for others to file briefs in support of meeting out punishment for the plea bargain that was initially agreed to by General Flynn. Confusing. But in terms of the rule of law and on whose side the merits suggest it stands, listen to what former U.S. attorney from Western Texas and former deputy independent counsel during Whitewater, Saul uh, Weisenberg, had to say. Oh, I think he it's important for him to join the chorus of how this is being uh, spun, because, as I've said many times over the last year, it's very important for them to try to destroy the legitimacy of Bill Barr, because Bill Barr is doing the right thing and he's getting to the bottom of this. And it's entirely lawful for the Department of Justice to dismiss a prosecution in the interest of justice. And this motion was used very cogent reasoning. It's very simple. An investigation of the incoming national security advisor had already completely cleared him, but was kept open under a fraudulent pretext, and he was interviewed under a fraudulent pretext, and there was absolutely nothing wrong with his phone calls with the Russian ambassador Kislyak. And what shows disrespect for the law is when you unmask uh, officials who shouldn't be unmasked and then leak classified material and leak the Kislyak-Flynn phone calls to the press, which is a felony offense. And we're still waiting to find out if we'll ever find out who uh, committed those felonious offenses. For more on the topic, please be joined by Margot Cleveland, adjunct instructor for the College of Business at the University of Notre Dame and senior contributor to The Federalist. Margot, thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Bit of a surprise move by uh, Judge Sullivan to uh, not uh, rule in the direction of a Department of Justice that dropped the charges against General Flynn. Um, how do you see this playing out other than uh, more politicization for a longer period of time? Sure. So it absolutely was a surprise move here. And my gut is that the Department of Justice is going to file and ask the judge to say no amicus briefs are allowed. It's not an appropriate forum for doing that. If that doesn't fly, you're going to have a flurry of them come in. And hopefully we're not going to have too much extraneous material, but it's going to be a, a time for those who see Barr as overstepping his bounds to try to create chaos and some false issues, and it's going to be a mess. What about uh, the matter of uh, Richard Grinnell declassifying the uh, names of individuals associated with the unmasking of General Flynn, the one crime we know was committed, and uh, the uh, prospect of that becoming public knowledge independent of the Durham investigation? I think that that's going to give us some more information, not so much on the Flynn case, but how widespread this unmasking was and how many individuals were connected with either the Trump campaign or later the Trump administration. So I don't see that having as much of an impact on Michael Flynn because they obviously had already known his identity when they they unmasked him, if that's what they did. It's not going to have any bearing on the actual case and what the elements they need to prove are. 
Right, but it goes to this larger conversation about the rule of law and weaponizing Absolutely. weaponizing uh, right. law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies against a political opponent, and not whether right. Obama knew, because of course he knew it was a counterintelligence <laughs> right. investigation, but what he knew and perhaps what he was directing people to do. Absolutely, and I think that one of the points is you're making it's the rule of law, and you're hearing this come from former President Obama and a lot on the left saying that oh, this is a, a breach of the rule of law. No, what happened to General Flynn and what happened to Donald Trump and what happened to Carter Page, that was the abuse of the rule of law. The special counsel that was appointed for ridiculous reasons and two years and millions and millions of dollars wasted, that was a breach of the rule of law. Nothing that we're seeing with uh, Attorney General Barr, who has been actually very balanced in this. You didn't see charges come against Andrew uh, McCabe. He's actually trying to restore the rule of law. Uh, David Frum uh, wrote a rather remarkable piece, and that's not intended as a compliment, at the, the Atlantic.com. This is now a former George W. Bush speechwriter. And perhaps now you know why President Trump was uh, the Republican Party nominee in 2016, because David Frum represented the vanguard of the Republican Party for a time. He um, says Trump has lost the plot. He uh, caricatures uh, Trump's messaging on this, saying um, uh, in, in Trump's voice. So you're saying the deep state set up this whole elaborate plot to entrap Trump. But instead of using any of that material, it instead sabotaged it instead sabotaged Hillary Clinton 10 days before the election. He goes on to say in his own voice, Trump's messages are all about him. Uh, you've you're sick and you're scared. You've lost your job or your business. But let's remember who the real victim is, me and me and Michael Flynn, but mostly me. Trump has lost the plot. He's talking about things most voters could not even understand, let alone care about. Yes, Flynn lied to the FBI. But you have to see the FBI, the, the FBI's interview was not properly predicated. Meanwhile, uh, you know, the coronavirus and the economic damage rages on. That's Flynn's uh, that's uh, Frum's summation on the whole Flynn matter. How do you respond to that? Oh, that that's just outrageous on so many fronts. They spent four years, over 30 million dollars, the media and <laughs> the deep state pushing this whole Russia collusion myth. And now that the evidence is coming out, they're, oh, don't look at this. You know, we have too many other things going on with COVID-19. Yes, that is something that the president should be focused on. And he is focused on and has led well on that. It's outrageous for them to try to use this pandemic for what they did in the election and before the election and after. And the whole claim that Flynn lied to the FBI and that they're trying to dump it on materiality is false. If you read what the government said, they said, look, we have concerns that there were no false statements. And he walked through the, the filing, the uh, U.S. attorney's filing, walked through and said, look at what he actually said in the interview and compare that to what they put in the 302s after they had a bunch of wordsmithing done by lawyers who are not involved in the interview. So they're, they're, they have a whole false narrative also that, look, Flynn lied and they're trying to throw the case on materiality. That's false. But this whole using COVID-19 as an excuse for the worst political just scandal of our, of our lifetime is ridiculous as well. 
She is Margot Cleveland, adjunct instructor for the College of Business at the University of Notre Dame and senior contributor at The Federalist, thefederalist.com, where you can read her writings on this topic, which I will tweet out at Dan Prof Show. Margot Cleveland, thanks again for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. And of course, my comments are only speaking for myself and uh, not any of my employers. So there you I appreciate go. you having me on. Yes, separating thanks you from so the much. fighting Irish, no problem. Hey now, hey The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. When Dr. Tony Fauci testified on the Hill yesterday, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Fauci, Admiral Jouar. Get him in there, break it up. But Dr. Fauci had this to say about the prospect of reopening. What we have worked out is a guideline framework of how to safely uh, open America again. And there are several checkpoints in that with a gateway first of showing, depending on the dynamics of an outbreak in a particular region, state, city or area, that would really determine the speed and the pace with which one does re-enter or reopen. So my, my word has been, and I've been very consistent in this, that I get concerned if you have a situation where the dynamics of an outbreak in an area are such that you are not seeing that gradual over 14-day decrease that would allow you to go to phase one. And then if you pass the checkpoints of phase one, go to phase two and phase three. What I've expressed then and again is my concern that if some areas, cities, states, or what have you, jump over those various checkpoints and prematurely open up without having the capability of being able to respond effectively and efficiently, my concern is that we will start to see little spikes that might turn into outbreaks. So therefore, I have been being very clear in my message to try to the best extent possible to go by the guidelines, which have been very well thought out, and very well delineated. For more on the reopening, what we know, what we don't know, what we need to know to feel safer, we're pleased to be joined by Chris Von Chafalve. I hope I got that right. Uh, epidemiologist, epidemiologist specializing in bat-borne viruses, currently VP of Special Projects at Starshima. Uh, Chris Chafalve? Chevalve. Chevalve. Is that right? Yep, that's about right. That's about right. All right, great. Thank you. Um, so uh, with respect to what uh, Dr. Fauci had to say about, you know, the guidelines that are often referenced, just just more generally, rather than getting into the details, is what you've heard in terms of uh, the path back to some reopening as the reopenings occur state by state, uh, based on what we know and uh, what we know about the virus in terms of its contagiousness, and uh, lethality. Do, 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 does the approach, generally speaking, make sense to you? Absolutely. So the plan to reopening is actually a very good, very cautious, and a very data-driven plan. And that is actually what you would want from a plan like this uh, at a time like this. So it is very strongly anchored in 
the fact that we now have a huge advantage, which we don't normally have in outbreaks, which is that we have a lot of data coming in, very granular data, very high-quality data on how many cases there are and how this virus behaves. So that allows us to monitor the situation on the ground quite consistently and from that derive these next steps. Now, I have to probably say that this is a plan that's primarily concerned with rapid suppression of the outbreak. It is not a comprehensive plan for all things. And when epidemiologists put these plans together, for us, the success criterion is get rid of the disease, smash it back where it came from, and just have a healthy population. I think Dr. Fauci understands, I understand, all epidemiologists understand that there are other concerns as well, such as the economy, such as possible mortality and morbidity caused by the lockdown. So uh, there is uh, often uh, mental health issues have been mentioned in that context. So, but this is a more complex social, political, economic issue. But from the epidemiological perspective, this is what you want a model to look like, mm-hmm. or what you want a uh, reopening plan to look like. When we come back with Chris Fon Chafelve, epidemiologist specializing in bat-borne viruses, I want to talk about uh, the road to a vaccine, the prospects of reopening without one, and the inevitable second wave this fall into the winter. More with Chris Von Chafelve. Next. Doctor? 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 And Doctor. I've been in a wrong place, but it must have been a right time. I've been in a right place, but it must have been a wrong song. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Chris Von Chafelve. I want to uh, pick up our conversation in uh, discussing a vaccine. And if you don't get a vaccine and a lockdown for 12 to 18 months is impractical, as you said, and I agree that it is, then it's going to happen anyway. So it seems to me like where there's some utopian option that we have that comes without risk. You mentioned at the outset the trade-offs of lives versus lives between the lives caused by the lockdowns, mental health, and uh, those afraid to go to the hospital, get to get the treatments they need and so forth, versus the lives being taken by the virus. So we have a lives versus lives trade-off. We can't lock down for 12 to 18 months, which epidemiologists would recommend in a perfect world, in a utopian world. We may or may not get a vaccine even in that time period, and that's impractical to lock down. So then what choice do we have? It's going to be that path, is it not? Probably the best approach in this case is to have very strong, very gradual surveillance of cases. 
Mm-hmm. So like very granular, I mean, not just, not even county level, even narrower level surveillance of cases. I'm, I'm, you know, and, can, I, can I just stop you there? Because I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up contact tracing because that's where I wanted to go next. Contact tracing, which I know has become one of the watch phrases of uh, the, the political set, uh, just parroting what uh, epidemiologists and scientists are saying. Keith Humphreys, who's a psychologist over at Stanford, brings up a good point. Here's where, you know, best case scenario and then the real world complications. Uh, he writes, most of my great public health colleagues are greatly overestimating the likelihood the U.S. can mount a national test, trace and isolate program like Germany and South Korea. My friends are mistaking a political cultural challenge for a technical one. It's not that we can't do the technical side brilliantly. Of course we can. He argues what he's saying is hard questions are going to drive hard answers and answers that may not be acceptable. So, for example, what do you do when millions of Americans refuse to take your test? What do you do when many of the people you ordered isolate to close their businesses angrily refuse, as some are doing right now? Those questions, I know, are not necessarily the purview of epidemiologists. They're the purview of public policymakers. But in terms of modeling anything that has any practical application, it seems to me Professor Humphrey's considerations need to be factored in. Well, they might not be the purview of epidemiologists, but they definitely are part of our experience. So mm-hmm. I have been at the receiving end of anger and some uh, fairly strong reactions and contact tracing during previous outbreaks. I've been participating in the uh, West African Ebola outbreak and later in the Congo Ebola outbreak. And uh, there were times when we were essentially chased away by sticks and guns. So uh, that that is something uh, that is probably one of the less preferable parts of your work in epidemiology and something that most epidemiologists, I suppose, are quite familiar with, or at least quite uh, somewhat accept. Perfect contact tracing, again, is something that doesn't really happen. It's also somewhat of an external observer. I've lived all over the world. I've uh, only recently moved to the United States. My understanding is that the social and political attitudes in the U.S. And this isn't any particular political party. This is just how the average U.S. citizen conceives of his relationship with the state and the collective. Probably make a wide contact tracing and testing program where we mandatorily test everybody, not necessarily popular and almost definitely not feasible. There's also, of course, the fact that the comparators that we get, South Korea, Germany, etc. So the United States is big, okay, I'm saying the obvious here, and very populous. When you come to 330 million people, that's not a continuation of how you deal with um, 60 or 80 million people. That's a qualitatively different problem, not just quantitatively. It doesn't lie on the same continuum. It's not, doesn't, uh, it isn't you scale up your solution and you do more of it and you put more money off it. It is an entirely different problem and it's never been done in history. Right. We've never tested hundreds of millions of people. No, I know. And, 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 and by the way, I mean, half the counties in the United States have zero COVID deaths. 
So, I mean, but part of the frustration is treating rural Wyoming the same way we're treating New York City rhetorically. Some politicians are. It's super annoying because, as you say, they're qualitatively different environments and they have a qualitatively different pr- presentation in terms of the COVID-19 threat, it would seem. But, I mean, the, the, this what, what you're saying in terms of, like, all of the challenges and impossibilities and impracticalities is exactly what I'm saying is, you know, you people who uh, sort of uh, poo-poo the, the Swedish model, uh, what I'm hearing and when you intersect a practicality with, optima- uh, with, with optimality is uh, this, we got, the Swedish model is what's going to happen more likely than not, whether you want well, it to or not. I think, I think it's going to be slightly different. I think it's going to be slightly different in that what we can do in the U.S. is – we do not need a an American model, so to speak. There's no need for that. And in fact, I don't think that would be sensible. Uh, Sweden, again, is it's relatively inhomogeneous when it comes to European countries, but it's still way more homogenous than the U.S. We don't need a U.S. model. We don't even need a New York or uh, Illinois model. What we need is to look at the smallest units we can and very, very granularly, relying a lot on data, determine what to do on a county or possibly even sub-county level. So I'm in Fairfax County, Virginia. There is no reason to treat Fairfax County the same as uh, Alexandria, which is a much more urban, uh, much more concentrated, higher population density area with a lot of businesses. So we actually, for the first time probably in history, have the tools to have county-level measures and essentially start easing counties that are going the right way, or even sub-county units, start easing them if they go the right way, keeping resources in reserve to tightening back very rapidly as uh, as soon as start to show that and and, and, right and and do you expect uh, as doctors Fauci and Gottlieb and others have suggested that it's more likely than not we'll have a second wave of infection come the fall and, and winter it's almost definite that there is going to be a second wave mm-hmm. he is Chris von Che Falve. I got to get that more fluid. Chris Von Che Falve, epidemiologist specializing in bat-borne diseases, current VP of special projects at Starshima. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. With apologies to Jim McKay, we go from the sublime to the ridiculous. A conversation with an epidemiologist about COVID nineteen and heady topics like contact tracing to the Michael uh, the Mike Tyson podcast called Hot Boxing with his uh, special guest for the most recent installment, Dennis the Worm Rodman, a former Piston Bad Boy and Bulls great, of course, talking about. Kim Jong-un, if only he was available as well, and uh, waxing nostalgic about Dennis Rodman's first meeting of Kim Jong-un and uh, the tour of the place that he got. Mike Tyson and Dennis Rodman talking about 
the North Korean dictator. Not exactly uh, Karpov and uh, Kasparov, is it? I never talked politics with him. I've seen the military. I've seen the missiles. I've seen every damn thing. thing. I've seen everything. I've seen, I've seen the Muslims and stuff like that. Uh, they have like three Muslims. Uh, when you go in the first the Muslim one, of his father? Uh, no, his grandfather. Oh, his grandfather? So uh. we walk in here. It's all red lights and stuff like the music playing. And the casket, the casket is right in the middle. And the lights are shining right on his grandfather. And people go and, like, you know, you can't wear glasses, you can't do this, you can't wear shoes, you can't wear a hat, and stuff like that. So basically, you go there and you bow. And it's actually his grandfather, frozen forever. So he's wow. by himself, by himself. So we, we move on. We go to the next, next room. It's his father in the middle of the room. This place is like wow. enormous, enormous. And they're just right in the middle of the room by themselves. And then after that, we move into the next hall. It's an empty casket. For him, right? For him. This is even dumber than the movie about this, the interview with Seth Rogen and James Franco. And uh, Rodman uh, said uh, that Kim Jong-un asked him, you like my country? And he said, yeah, it's fine, it's cool, it's okay. Perhaps ask Otto Warmber about that on a serious note. Or he said that uh, Kim Jong-un said to him, we asked Michael Jordan to come, but he wouldn't come, so we asked you. Boy, there's a huge drop-off. From uh, first choice to second choice, don't you think? We asked Michael Jordan to come, but he's not out of his mind. So instead, we asked you, is sort of the, uh, I think, parenthetical remark there. And then uh, Kim told Rodman, let's have dinner tonight, a little karaoke, have some vodka, some hotties. Kim Jong-un apparently is 16 years old at this time. Uh, Rodman then recounted uh, the gift that he bestowed on Kim Jong-un's progeny to cement their bond but does he have a child he has a son yes uh he's a baby girl and um when she was born i think when i last time i went over that she was only six months old i was smart enough to do one that i brought him i brought him a, a baby uh dennis robin jersey and we put it on the baby and we took pictures with the baby and stuff like that but uh it was just so amazing to see something like that dude and that resonated to me right there because everyone hates this guy yes not exactly buckley and vidal tyson and rodman um, but, uh, yeah, if you like that, there's more. Subscribe to Mike Tyson's podcast, Hot Boxing, Geopolitics with Mike Tyson and Dennis Rodman. Um, I think we are fairly far through the looking glass at this juncture. I'm Dan Prof. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Thanks for joining us again. Follow us at uh, Dan Proft Show on both Twitter and Facebook, danproftshow.com for podcasts. You can also get them on Spotify and iTunes. And uh, we uh, played this yesterday, but I think it bears a return uh, in conversation with our next guest. And that's this exchange between Senator Rand Paul, Dr. Paul, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Redfield, Dr. Redfield, Dr. Paul, Dr. Hahn, Dr. Fauci. Fauci uh, and Rand Paul, with Rand Paul providing you know, just sort of um, clarifying pushback to Dr. Fauci with respect to perhaps opening schools specifically, but it was more a general statement about reminding 
uh, as to reminding people the lane in which Fauci and other infectious disease experts operate and the other lanes that need to be considered. But it was reported by the D.C. press corps as a veritable barroom brawl. Listen for yourself in case you hadn't heard. Much as I respect you, Dr. Fauci, I don't think you're the end all. I don't think you're the one person that gets to make a decision. We can listen to your advice, but there are people on the other side saying there's not going to be a surge and that we can safely open the economy. And the facts will bear this out. But if we keep kids out of school for another year, what's going to happen is the poor and underprivileged kids who don't have a parent that's able to teach them at home are not going to learn for a full year. And I think we ought to look at the Swedish model and we ought to look at letting our kids get back to school. I think it's a huge mistake if we don't open the schools in the fall. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, can I respond to that even though there are only 32 seconds left? Uh, yes, and you might make it clear whether or not you suggested that uh, we shouldn't go back to school in the fall. Well, uh, first of all, uh, Senator Paul, thank you for your comments. I, I have never made myself out to be the end all and only voice in this. I'm a scientist, a physician, and a public health official. Yeah, right. <laughs> so there's agreement. There's agreement that he, Fauci, operates in a particular lane. He gives advice based on his expertise. By the way, there's a lot of other experts in his lane, too. Uh, he and Burks may be two of the best. Fine. They're in a lane. And the, the experts across sectors in other lanes need to also be considered uh, by the public policymakers, those elected to make decisions on behalf of the constituents who elected them and, frankly, those who didn't vote for them as well, the constituents they serve. I mean, why is this so complicated? And to call that exchange particularly pointed or controversial is, to me, an indication that it's just going to be very difficult to have intelligent conversations about anything COVID-19 related, at least in certain quarters. As an antidote to that, we're pleased to be joined by uh, John Gabriel. He is the editor-in-chief of Ricochet and contributor to azcentral.com. John, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. So what what about that? I mean, were you uh, just uh, either riveted to your uh, TV screen or horrified by the exchange between uh, Rand Paul and Tony Fauci? Yeah, if they thought this was a barroom brawl, um, I, I pitied their uh, not some exciting lives. Yeah, it was just a calm discussion of things, and they both made good points. I, I think uh, Rand Paul's was... Just saying that uh, Fauci doesn't get to call all the shots was just a boring statement of fact that everybody should already accept. You know? People thought that was some kind of a indignant response was uh, kind of beyond me. Um, well, well uh, because because the, that response is is funneled through the media translator to mean uh, don't listen to the experts. Rand Paul and Donald Trump, they're not listening to the experts. They just said Tony Fauci is just an expert in one space and his opinion should just be considered rather than etched in stone. Yeah, and I think that's true. It's it's almost like we're uh, rooting for a sports team or our favorite uh, personalities. Um, you, you can't criticize them at all or you hate science. Uh, science spelled with a capital S, of course. <laughs> it's really disturbing because there's so many moving parts to this thing. Not only with the coronavirus itself, but also just the economy going on, all the other surgeries people are putting off, all the mental health and substance abuse issues of how those people are suffering, being kind of locked at home all the time. And uh, just to say, well, you can never criticize Anthony Fauci is just bizarre to me. It's We're all adults here. There's a lot of moving parts. We have to be discussing these things. We want to help out the situation. You uh, wrote a piece about Zoom and uh, providing um, some caution, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, abundance of caution. 
caution uh, about uh, the backdrop on the uh, Zoom chats you engage in. And we saw some of that yesterday uh, with respect to these this uh, Senate committee hearing, but also even just uh, those who were physically present. I mean, uh, look, I, I think it was very nice of Dr. Burks to lend one uh, Tim Kaine one of her scarves. But that was uh, <laughs> that was one of the more interesting fashion choices I've seen, uh, Senator Kaine's. Yeah, I couldn't decide if that it was a scarf or he's trying to bring back ascots from like the, I don't know, 100 yeah, years ago. Sure. Or uh, maybe hold up a train. I, I don't know what he was doing exactly. But yeah, it's kind of funny that everybody kind of can dress how they want. Uh, they're in their own settings, they choose the backgrounds they want. And uh, it reveals a lot about people more than they might think. Oh, I, I liked Elizabeth. I don't know if you saw Elizabeth Warren, too, but Elizabeth Warren from her home, you know, it was set like a realtor would set for a showing. But but of course, you know, of course, with a brewski there, because she's just a regular gal. <laughs> right, right. Just a regular Joe slamming back a few during the meeting. Uh, um, yeah, it's uh, really funny because it, it's important that. Uh, it looks kind of decent in the background. My background is terrible because I just, you know, I'm backed into a corner. So, you know, my kids and pets don't wander behind me. So uh, mine's terrible. I have to up my game. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you want it set and look nice, but don't look at too mannered. And a lot of these politicians are, yeah, I'm sure they have uh, 13 consultants checking it out and strategically setting a half-drunk bottle of beer in the background uh, to send a message <laughs> to everybody. You're trying too hard, Liz. Um, I wonder if uh, you have felt the uh, sting of the new Twitter minders yet. Uh, uh, social media here in advance of uh, November's election uh, gearing up, clearly. Twitter announcing Monday it's going to start alerting users when a tweet makes disputed or misleading claims about the coronavirus. But I don't think they mean, for example, Andrew Cuomo saying it's a good idea to return infected nursing home patients to their nursing home. I don't think they mean that as far as a disputed statement. No, they they are really setting up uh, almost like a Chinese model here. We're going to tell you what truth is, and it's whatever we say truth is at the moment, you know. Everybody uses the example of a uh, World Health Organization saying, oh, masks are ineffective. You shouldn't use that. They were singing that tune, you know, a month or so ago. And now all of a sudden, if you don't uh, wear a mask with a mask on top of that mask and maybe some goggles, too, you're trying to kill old people. So uh, the the truth, quote unquote, changes every couple of days. And uh, for some uh, you know, Twitter Yahoo um, somewhere in Silicon Valley to determine what is capital T truth on everybody's tweets is a little bit disturbing. Right. And, and, and you know, look, it, it seems to me, too, that the press corps is trying to pivot to contemplate the economic ruin that is being inflicted. There's a Washington Post story today on a, on a study from scholars at Harvard, the University of Illinois, about to, you know, 2% of small businesses, 100,000 businesses are gone forever. 3% of restaurants are gone forever coming out of this, probably uh, very much on the low end. But they're trying to at least provide some content that suggests they are concerned about economic ruination and the, the associated public health problems that stem from such ruination. Um, so I, I don't know if I see that as them trying to be more even handed or I should understand it to be them trying to be more even handed or them just trying to run damage control for the governors that are really in the, the hot seats right now uh, as public opinion changes and people get a little bit more antsy. I'm talking about 
big state uh, Democrat uh, governors like Pritzker in Illinois, where I live, Cuomo, Newsom, and others. Their job would be so much easier if they'd just be honest with people. <laughs> Not possible. Going on. Yeah. But, yeah, it's like, um, yeah, they're running interference and they're playing this delicate dance. Um, I live in Arizona, and our governor's uh, slowly reopening things kind of step by step, so he'll get attacked for that. But uh, next state over in Colorado, the Democratic governor is doing about the same thing, and he hasn't mentioned what he's doing that because he has a D after his name. It's like if we just treat this like you have been saying as adults and saying, look, there are no solutions here. There's not like some silver bullet to the situation. There are trade-offs. And, okay, how many um, – how much uh, should people – be able to live their lives as normal and should certain people kind of stay behind closed doors you know these are all trade-offs we're all trying to figure out and if we would just kind of work together um in r's and d's let's say uh we would do a much better job instead of just uh attacking the other side uh because you know the governor happens to be a conservative uh, when we come back with uh, John Gabriel, I want to uh, pick up on this discussion and just talk about the new two Americas. Two Americas is a construct politicians use all the time, but there really seem do seem to be two Americas right now, one that's closed and one that's open or soon to be open. More with John Gabriel, the editor-in-chief of Ricochet, ricochet.com, right after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we're talking to john gabriel editor-in-chief of ricochet ricochet.com contributor to azcentral.com and john you were just describing what's happening in in arizona and obviously there's a lot of my former friends, uh, well, they're still my friends. They're former Chicago residents who now live in Arizona, you know, have fled right. for the Sun Belt or fled for Florida. And so you see what's happening there. You hear what's happening there, people going back to restaurants and so forth. And then right next door in California, you have the largest county in the country issuing a extension of a shelter in place order for three months, L.A. County, despite a relative paucity of COVID-19 related deaths and even caseload relative to the healthcare system. I mean, that is one of the more jarring extensions I've seen so far, and it barely got any notice yesterday. Yeah, it's uh, really disturbing. Some of these um, petty officials are just like, wow, we really like this power. We want to control this. And I think, once again, they're just looking at this as all we care about is coronavirus, and they aren't looking to the broader issues going on. Of course, civil liberties, people being allowed out of their homes for crying out loud, especially if you just want some uh, fresh air and a little bit of sunshine. But also, too, just looking, hey, we have economic things going on. We have other health things going on. During these lockdowns, you had people who have put off cancer screenings. They, they've put off all these various appointments they need. We want to make sure, as many people have said, that the you know, the so-called treatment isn't worse than the disease itself. And yeah, we're really going to see these laboratories of democracies, these different states handling things in different ways. And I think most of the American people, regardless of what politicians say, they're done. <laughs> they're just kind of done with these lockdowns. And it'd be wise for the politicians to get ahead of that and, you know, make sure they at least can pretend to have some semblance of control 
before the people just say, oh, we're ignoring everything you say from here on out. It, it seems like some of these politicians are only concerned about opposition to lockdowns they get from uh, inmates. So the big story out of California yesterday was not about uh, the three-month extension of the shelter and order in L.A. County. It was about uh, the L.A. County Sheriff providing surveillance videos showing inmates at one of their jails trying to purposely get infected with COVID-19, and everybody is shocked by that. Well, why would you be shocked? You you basically said, if you have COVID-19, we're going to release you. If I'm doing an extended stretch in a prison and I'm young and healthy, which most inmates are, you know, relatively speaking, I'll take my chances with COVID-19 if I get my freedom. This is uh, surprising to the policymakers. Yeah, yeah. It's um, the strange world where there are only cause and there's no effect that results from it. You know, well, our good intentions should be enough, and uh, there's no unintended consequences. Yeah, this is, these are the kind of perverse incentives that uh, many of these leaders, you know, from, you know, mayors to governors and right on up, um, perverse incentives that they're providing with their, you know, how they're trying to respond to coronavirus. And it's just foolish for them not to understand that, yeah, people aren't used to being trapped in their homes for you know, three months or, yeah, you're talking about the prison, uh, being trapped in prison, they're going to do what they need to do to get the heck out of prison, especially when, uh, you know, this uh, disease is only affecting, at the moment, primarily the the elderly. And so, of course, they're going to take chances. They want to get back on the streets. And, and it just, the, the, the focus, you know, Shelley Luther, the hair salon owner in Dallas, is a threat to public health and some 77-year-old barber in upstate Michigan is a threat to public health, and some cop in, uh, in Seattle is a threat to public health. Um, but 4,000 inmates released from Illinois prisons, for example, 64 who were convicted of murder, that's not a threat to public health right. or safety. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's not an issue at all because, you know, these people are cast as somehow being victims uh, being in prison there. Um, but it, yeah, it, it really is disturbing that it, everybody's just trying to pick sides on this instead of, hey, we're all in this together, let's figure this out together, and we're all trying to figure out the best solution. Uh, one thing that makes it trickier, too, is what works best for you know the Bronx or downtown New York City is going to be really different from the people who live in Springfield, Illinois, from Duluth, Minnesota, from to Phoenix. It's we all live in kind of different circumstances, and we're all trying to figure it out if the best for our abilities. And uh, we can't bash people for trying to kind of fine-tune the situation and get it as, as right as they can get it for their community. Does this, uh, do you think, and your sense of this as it's unfolding, and we had a couple of special elections yesterday, including one in California, where uh, the Republican had a surprisingly good performance um, does, is this changing the political landscape at all, or is it sort of just freezing people in place with respect to their their uh, dispositions pre-outbreak, do you think? Yeah, it's really difficult to see. Um, I, I think it, it's, it's difficult to predict what's going to be the longer-term effects of this. I think people naturally want to feel comfortable, so they just kind of bury themselves in their current position. But I think a lot of people are kind of opening their eyes um, at what's going on because you just have so many people who might not even be political at all, and they're worried about their job, and they're getting yelled at for being worried about their job. Right. You know, um, to even care about getting your life back to normal is 
quote unquote, wanting to kill old people, which obviously nobody wants to do. And um, I, I think a lot of people who have been apolitical are like, look, I just want to reopen my little business that I have here. I run a barber shop, um, you know, whatever it might be, my nail salon. I just want to reopen. It's, you know, don't yell at me for wanting to do that. We're trying to maintain our employees. So um, hopefully it'll cause some people who haven't been very political in the past or may have tended to the left to understand that there's another choice out there for them. Yeah, I, it, it seems to me I, I, I agree with you. I, I think it's it's almost oxymoronic. It's uh, it's a bit um, placid politically, but it's also volatile, uh, which uh, I, the two shouldn't go together. But they, they do, because, as you say, I think they're you know, it's the old saying about just because you don't take an interest in politics doesn't mean politics won't take an interest in you. And that's happened to millions of people who didn't have an interest in politics, but are now forced to because of the choices they're facing, perhaps the pain they're suffering. And so it, it, so that that creates a volatile environment. And I don't know that that volatility has presented itself in any defined direction to this point. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is are people just saying, look, OK, I'll smile, I'll grin and bear it, I'll put up with this. But I think everyone, you know, especially just kind of stuck in homes, you know, <laughs> There's going to reach a point and people are going to be enough that, that where you are absolutely done. And you can see that, you know, gosh, across the country, just traffic is increasing on the highways and uh, more people are kind of out and about. It's not like everybody's just like mass disobedience of whatever rule each state has in place. But people are tense and people are frustrated and uh, politicians are to be very careful and uh, start to get ahead of this, just rolling back these lockdowns. Or uh, there's going to be a lot of rage directed uh, at them. Uh, by the way, uh, I'm sorry we don't have time to get to it, but uh, you've got uh, a, a good piece at ricochet.com. The mass fell that day that, that I think could be option for like a John Hughes coming of age tale. Uh, uh, this uh, supermarket story you tell, it's uh, it's very poignant. I, I feel like a, I feel like a Kenny Loggins soundtrack, maybe. <laughs> This is good that stuff. That would be perfect. John Gabriel, editor-in-chief of Ricochet.com, contributor to AZCentral.com. John, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. Uh, our friend, friend of the show, Brett Baer, host of Fox Special Report, got uh, an interesting guest yesterday, Matthew McConaughey, the Academy Award-winning actor, of course. All right, all right, all right. McConaughey and his wife have gotten involved in charitable endeavors to provide materials to people in need during the pandemic. And he had a particular message uh, not an unsurprising one. I think largely a constructive one talking about uh, you know, getting beyond uh, the partisanship of the issue, lamenting that uh, certain responses to the pandemic are being perceived and reported as sort of left versus right identifiers. And all of a sudden the narrative became, if you want to go to work, you're on the far right. If you don't, Want to go to work and you want to stay home, you're on the far left. And now even the mask wearing is getting politicized, where 
if you want to wear a mask, you wear a mask, you're a liberal, and if you don't, you're a conservative. And, and that's just not true. So this created a false divide, sort of two wars in, the, in, a, in America, an us versus them war and an us versus the virus war. It has a certain appeal, I mean, certainly, but it's difficult to bridge the gaps he's describing. I mean, maybe not about mask wearing or not mask wearing being an identifier for ideology necessarily. But I mean, there are real divides here. There are real divides in terms of the experience and the punishment being taken by people who are in different socioeconomic categories, by people who are different parts of the country. There doesn't seem to be a lot of consideration given, particularly in the direction of people insulated from much of the punishment to those who are feeling much of the punishment, both in terms of health as well as in terms of economic independence economic security. This is not about politics. It's about us, the USA. And we've got to take care of each other right now. We have a collective purpose. I mean, how many times do we have a unanimous, are we unanimously convicted of an enemy that we all want to be? Yeah, there's no question. Um, but, you know, the desire to do something and disagreement about uh, how to do it and how to balance all sorts of competing interests requires a discussion of trade-offs that a lot of Americans aren't willing to have because politicians tell them they don't need to consider trade-offs. The magical thinking that afflicts so many, you know, being lobotomized politically, essentially it's what's happening. But, you know, maybe, maybe there's something we can do to get past it all, to unify. You know, let's do the things that are not controversial that uh, are uh, nonetheless productive. If you are going to re-engage right now, uh, pl please wear a mask. I haven't heard any science that says that is not a good idea. And I hope we wear a mask as a badge of honor and not something that we feel like somebody told us we had to wear and it takes away our identity. Um, I, I think wearing a mask is not propaganda. I don't think it's partisanship or politics. Uh, I think a mask is all about our purpose right now. Yeah, but it's not necessarily all about science. It's a little bit more complicated than that, Matt. I'm sorry. For example, again, uh, meet the press's... Uh, Epidemiologist of choice, Osterholm from University of Minnesota. You know, the, the, the cloth face covering, which uh, meets most of the uh, communities and states that have imposed a face covering mandate, that has serves no purpose. It's, I mean, yeah, you can wear it like a badge, honoring yourself. I'm a good person, look at me. But it doesn't have a scientific purpose. It doesn't have a prevent the spread purpose. Uh, this from Lisa Brousseau, who is a, national expert on respiratory protection and infectious diseases at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Margaret Setsima, also an expert on respiratory protection and assistant professor at University of Illinois at Chicago. We do not recommend requiring the general public who do not have symptoms of COVID-19-like illness to routinely wear cloth or surgical masks because there's no evidence they are effective in reducing risk of transmission. They, their use may result in those wearing masks to relax other distancing because they have a sense of protection. False. False sense of protection. We need to preserve the supply of surgical masks for at-risk healthcare workers. Also, respirators are, well, the, they're the only option that can ensure protection for frontline workers dealing with COVID-19 cases. We do, know, uh, we do not know whether respirators are an effective intervention as a source control for the public. For example, a non-fit tested respirator may not offer any better protection than a surgical mask. Respirators work as PPE only when they are the right size and have been fit tested to demonstrate they achieve an adequate protection factor. So, uh, you know, I don't want to rain on your unity parade, Matthew McConaughey, 
But um, yeah, even something you think as simple as that is non-controversial, and I don't mean it to be controversial, but uh, it's just not as straightforward as you suggest. Um, there are certain simple things we can do, and then there are things that are more compl- complex and require people to make trade-offs. But as long as we persist in doing things that are symbolic and misrepresenting that they're more than symbolic, then it's going to be difficult to unify because some people want to live in what we know to be true and other people want to live in what we wish were, well, the things we wish were true. This is Dan Proud. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You know, I get um, a little annoyed by those uh, haughty politicians and particularly on the left, because that's where they seem to mainly reside, not exclusively, but mainly, and the champagne Leninists that provide so much support, as well as the um, cultural Marxists at the grassroots level that are uh, engaged in identitarian politics even during these times. They care more about lives than, than I do, than conservatives do, than those suggesting a phased reopening of society is judicious, saying we should always be concerned about our individual rights, even in times of of crisis, because these are things we cherish that distinguish America from any other country that's ever existed. So I, I bring this story also as someone, frankly, and this is not to celebrate myself in any way, it's just to provide a little bit of context, who has been involved in nonprofit work uh, in uh, service of persons with developmental disabilities for many years now. Uh, and I bring this story because um, I want to profile the challenges of people with developmental disabilities and the uh, lack of uh, being our brother's keeper that exists in the Western world, not always through government, but including government, people who need state services through no fault of their own and don't get them. I know this very well in Illinois, which despite uh, having one of the highest rates of spending per capita in the United States at the state governmental level, is one of the worst in the nation in providing services to developmentally disabled. Uh, So this piece by Rory Kinnear, an actor and playwright from across the pond in England, about his sister Karina, who died at the age of 48 recently after testing positive for COVID-19. She tested positive, quickly attacked her stomach, her lungs, and her kidneys. When she was admitted to the hospital, The carbon dioxide levels in her blood soon began to rise, which was a worrying sign as he goes on to describe her decline in health. Uh, Karina suffered a lack of oxygen at birth that caused severe brain damage. She had been left paralyzed from the waist down after a life-saving operation on her spine at the age of 19, had been intubated, suffered kidney damage six years ago with sepsis, Rory tells us. The last time we said our putative goodbyes to her was in hospital with chest infections regularly throughout her life. And every time when he thought she couldn't possibly take any more, she defied us. He uh, mentions that um, her conditions weren't underlying, weren't just underlying this um, brain damage she had suffered as a teenage, as a a child, 
during a childbirth and um, uh, lived with for her 48 years. Her conditions weren't just underlying, they were life-defining. For her and for us, even if she'd remained uh, uh, unaware of their severity. And um, he uh, picks this up about COVID-19 to try and you know bring it home that this is real. And it's a beautiful tribute to his sister, and I, I really appreciate it. And uh, what uh, he wants at least one of the takeaways to be. Rory writes, this disease is not just killing people who would have died soon anyway. It's making the lives of those most in need of our care and compassion even harder, even more fearful. And if there's anything uh, that I hope might come from Karina's death, from the tens of thousands of other deaths caused by this disease and its insidious spread, it's that as a country from government, both national and local, we might make our focus the easing of those lives in the future. Yeah. No, I think that's fair. And it's also a reminder that just because we say underlying conditions that the ninety eight percent of people who died were um, from COVID-19 had underlying conditions in this country and that country and this state and that state. That's we're not dismissing the value of their life. Uh, unfortunately, when you talk in macro life and death numbers, Uh, Stories like Karina's get lost. It doesn't mean that we're indifferent to Karina's life or her story. And I think that's important to state because uh, I'm not going to be pinned by the left with that description. It's not true. And I don't think it's true of anybody. Uh, He uh, writes, going back to Rory's views. uh, My mother spent Karina's life fighting for more support, more options, more recognition. 25 years ago, frustrated at the paucity of provision, she established her own charity to build a home for six young adults with severe disabilities, the Roy Kinnear House, named after my father, opened in 2000. Ten minutes uh, drive from my mom, where Karina continued to live with others in happiness and in the best of care. He uh, goes on to say, uh, in conclusion, Maybe we might transfer our common sense of purpose, our shared determination to defeat an enemy that preys on the needy. Once the fight against coronavirus has been won to invest financially and emotionally and with a similar level of heroism and selflessness in the lives of those who will continue to need it most. It is a sustaining hope for now, at least. Uh, And he talks about uh, the lesson and the inspiration that uh, his sister Karina provided for him and their family. And absolutely. Absolutely. In complete agreement. In complete agreement. That's why I'm involved in the um, nonprofit space in Chicago where I live uh, in service of people with developmental disabilities in a very small way compared to the people who operate these nonprofits, who people like uh, his mom who uh, did the uh, hard work of getting a home built so that uh, she could house not only her own child but uh, uh, other young adults suffering from uh, developmental disabilities as well. And look, you start from the premise that uh, people with disabilities are a reflection on our humanity. And uh, in terms of how they're treated, how they're how we treat people with disabilities, people that need protection is absolutely a mirror test as to our humanity. And um, government is not going to. uh, Replace the work that uh, the Kinnear family did. 
but it certainly can enhance it by providing services and keeping promises as to the, the uh, services that will be provided. And we haven't done a great job of that in America in general, in um, the state I live in in particular. And I appreciate uh, Rory Kinnear telling the story of Karina Kinnear and uh, suggesting one takeaway from her life and their family's experience, because I think it is one of those silver linings that we look for and talk about that could come from the way we approach COVID-19 and how we think about each other and how we think about the society in which we are a part coming out of this pandemic. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Lies, damn lies, and CNN polls, or at least the reporting on polls they've commissioned. And this comes to us from Mediate. It's one thing for conservative news sources to catch Chuck Todd doctoring a interview clip from Bill Barr sitting down with CBS's Catherine Harridge to talk about dropping charges in the Flynn case. And then Chuck Todd continuing to bail water for the rest of the week. This was the clip that we saw. Why don't you go watch, or somebody in your staff, go watch the entire interview. Are you that lazy? That's some defense that Chuck Todd offers. Anyway, back to CNN. Mediaite catching CNN in something. I mean, it's just it's just is so telling. I'm not even upset about it because how can you get upset about this sort of comedy? It's just uh, it's more sadness, actually, that some people actually still watch CNN or uh, read their website uh, under the delusion that they're getting actionable, accurate information about just about anything, but particularly COVID-19 related. 68% of Americans say a coronavirus vaccine is needed before returning to normal life. A new survey finds. That's what CNN tweeted out. The uh, problem with the tweet is that it is not remotely true. It is outright incorrect. In fact, the survey that they reference says something almost completely opposite of that that, uh, statement I just read. First of all, the question is poorly crafted. The survey question, how important are each of the following factors to you when thinking about your willingness to return to your normal activities? The availability of a vaccine to prevent COVID-19, 68% say very important, 17% say somewhat important, so on and so forth. Willingness to return to your normal activities, that's too generic. Once you start to dig in a little bit, you get a better and a different understanding than that number to that question would have you believe. 68% of respondents say, saying a vaccine is important. They're willing to return to normal activities is not the same thing as saying it's needed, important versus needed. Sure, would I like a vaccine? Who wouldn't want a vaccine? Everybody wants a vaccine. Uh, it should um, also say the actual measure of the poll and willingness to return to normal life. CNN rewriting returning to normal life, especially scientific measures in their own right. If you decide to go back to work and school before there's a vaccine, That may be resuming normal activities, but perhaps avoiding crowded dance floors or sporting event could be not resuming normal activities. It's just a hot mess is what it is. And um, the explanation from Arc Digital editor Nick Grossman, who um, noted that the CNN item mentioned but did not link to two Gallup surveys, he looked them up. And uh, what you actually find 
is something very different. Looking at the two Gallup questions that mentioned vaccines, the data shows that Americans are thinking about a lot of things, primarily concerned about a decline in new cases. But here's what the Gallup survey shows. Only 9% of Americans would definitely wait until there's a vaccine before returning to normal day-to-day activities. That is a small minority, not a large majority. 9%, not 68%. This uh, digital, ARC digital editor saying CNN should delete the tweet, fix the article, issue a correction, and be a lot more careful to accurately represent survey data in the future. Good luck with that. CNN issued a clarification on the order of Chuck Todd's clarification, which actually makes them look worse. This is Dan Proc. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. With respect to the prosecution of General Flynn and the counterintelligence investigation that led to the prosecution, that led to the Mueller investigation, that led to the prosecution, got to get everything sequenced here. The issue is not, as Andy McCarthy points out in National Review, whether Obama knew. Of course, he knew about a counterintelligence investigation. The purpose of a counterintelligence investigation is to act in the interests of national security. So you're going to apprise the president. This is a little bit of uh, legal parsing, but in this case, it's important. It's not whether the president knew. So the January 5th meeting isn't the end of the conversation about guilty knowledge about the nature of the counterintelligence investigation. Because it's not that he knew about it. It's what did he understand about it? What, in point of fact, did he direct, perhaps? In what direction did he provide for it? In other words, did he think it was a good faith effort to protect the integrity of elections? Or did he understand it to be the evidence-free fishing expedition that it was? It's not whether he knew. It's what he knew. And it's just an important distinction that Andy McCarthy makes as as he always provides insights into important distinctions. That's one. Joe Biden also in the room. We know from Susan Rice memo memorializing that January 5th meeting that has been so much discussed this week. It's a little bit difficult to follow because he contradicts himself, takes about 60 seconds for him to contradict himself in in his discussion with Clinton Foundation donor zero on GMA. So what did you know about those moves to investigate uh, Michael Flynn? And was there anything improper done? I know nothing about those moves to investigate Michael Flynn, number one. Number two, this is all about diversion. This is a game this guy plays all the time. The country is in crisis. We're in an economic crisis, a health crisis. We're in real trouble. He should stop trying to always divert attention from the real concerns of the American people. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you know about the investigation? I knew nothing about the investigation. You heard the question. You heard the answer. Then this happened. I do want to press that. You say you didn't know anything about it, but you were reported to be at a January 5th, 2017 meeting where you and the president were briefed on the FBI's plan to question Michael Michael Flynn over those uh, conversations he had with the uh, Russian ambassador Kislyak. Now, I thought you asked me whether or not I had anything to do with him being prosecuted. Okay, I'm sorry. I I, I was aware that there was that that they asked for an investigation. 
But that's all I know about it. And I don't think anything else. For more on this topic, as well as um, certain provisions of the uh, Pelosi phase four fantasy, we're pleased to be joined by John Fawn, columnist for National Review. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so on the matter of Flynn, let's start there. Uh, you wrote a piece about this uh, and protecting the rule of law, which is what uh, Obama was uh, hand-wringing over, I think, protesting too much if. But uh, your perspective on what we know about uh, what we're learning about uh, the Flynn matter with respect to recently filed documents and the decision by, by Barr to uh, drop the charges. This is probably the greatest fiasco regarding the media in 50 years. That's Britt Hume's conclusion. It's my conclusion. I've never seen anything this tragic. So we do know that in August 2016, Peter Strzok sends an email to Lisa Page, the FBI, in which he says the Obama White House wants to be fully apprised of everything we're doing. So clearly, in real time, as these fake FISA requests for surveillance were being made, the Obama White House was aware of them. Then in January, the election is over, and Obama is meeting with FBI and Justice Department officials on the investigation of Michael Flynn. Everyone has been interviewed in this process, it seems, except President Obama, and I think it's time someone do that. And he gets to hide out and pop up every time he wants to uh, disparage Donald Trump and say this is a destruction of the rule of law. He's perfectly free to do that. But isn't it time that he finally actually sit down and answer some questions about what did he know and when did he know it? Is that, uh, do you think, um, forthcoming? Uh, I mean, I know this is supposition, but is that a, a, even a possibility? It may be put a bit better put. Is it even a possibility depending on what the Durham report produces? Uh, I don't expect that. The media is certainly not going to demand it. Obama certainly wouldn't agree to it. But I think we should take everything that he says and his allies like Susan Rice say and Jim Clapper say with enormous pillar of salt because something happened and a whole bunch of Obama officials were either playing rogue or the White House knew what they were doing. We may never get to the full bottom of it, but in the meantime, oh, I think just common decency should mean that uh, they should shut up. Uh, but you have uh, Judge Sullivan providing... Um... Uh, yet another chapter in this, as you describe it, fiasco. Well, what Judge Sullivan did is rather than uh, recognize that, you know, in a case there have to be two parties fighting about something. In this case, the prosecution has given up. And it's clear that Flynn's guilty plea is suspect. We now know that from the documents that have been released, and apparently more are going to be coming out. But rather than make the necessary decision that since the prosecution has abandoned its case, he has to abandon the guilty plea. He's stringing this out so a bunch of Justice Department ex-lawyers can argue before him and make it more of a news spectacle. It's pure politics, and I'm disappointed in Judge Sullivan because in previous occasions, uh, he's been much tougher on the Justice Department. In fact, when Eric Holder tried to abandon a prosecution 10 years ago regarding Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska, Justice Sullivan acted in an entirely different way and recognized the rot at the middle of the Justice Department and, in fact, appointed a special counsel to try to clean it out. So this is a disappointing turn of events for him. 
Uh, John, I wanted to, to switch gears and also get onto this other piece that you wrote. This is you know, not top of mind because there are more life and death issues top of mind than the November election, but uh, it's still going to happen. And uh, Nancy Pelosi is uh, included as part of her uh, unicorn bill funding for states and localities, including for mail and ballots to do mail and elections. If Republicans were to accede to this idea of a mail in election, would they be mailing in the election, so to speak? Nancy Pelosi's bill is not just spending money. It is a mandate for the states to have online voter registration, same-day voter registration, which is an invitation to fraud, no-excuse mail voting, universal mail voting, in other words, everyone votes by mail in emergency situations like the current pandemic, no witness notary or voter ID requirements for mail ballots, a scrapping of most of the voter signature protections on absentee ballots, ballots counted even if they're received days after the election. I mean, it is a complete Banana Republic-style election process. At the same time, I opened my newspaper this morning, and in Patterson, New Jersey, just a few miles away from here, 600 mail-in ballots are being investigated for fraud. In fact, dozens of them were stolen from mailboxes and apparently filled out by somebody who wasn't the actual voter. I mean, the inconsistency here is just beyond belief. And yet yesterday you had the two congressional special elections, one for Sean Duffy's district in Wisconsin, a conservative district where the Republican won easily, and then a special for that uh, you know, rather, rather colorful Katie Hill seat, uh, which is a swing district that uh, uh, Republican Garcia won going away as well. So, so that's sort of a question about what the landscape provides right now, and it's difficult to discern. But against the backdrop of the mail-in election, even if the landscape were favorable to Republicans, because, for example, a lot of blue state governors may, at the end of the day, have been determined to have overreached in terms of the public perception, does the mail-in provide a fail-safe for Democrats? Look, I don't know or care exactly who can benefit from abuses of the mail-in ballot system. I do know that ballot harvesting, which allows political operatives to go door-to-door collecting and perhaps even helping voters fill out their ballots, is an open invitation to abuse and intimidation, and California is seeing a fair amount of that. This could work both ways. A congressional election in North Carolina was rescinded, and it had to be rerun because a consultant working for a Republican candidate had forged absentee ballots. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Look, it should not be a partisan issue. This should be, can we trust our elections? Can we have confidence in them? Can we believe in the people we elect to government? Or are they going to operate under a cloud of suspicion that they weren't legitimately elected? That is very corrosive and destructive of our democratic process, regardless of who is benefiting. No, I agree with you, but I think um, you also have to address who the moving party is for the destructive policy, and and so that's why I raise the issue. you're you're speaking to me from Chicago, so we don't even have to discuss (laughs) (laughs) what what Chicago's colorful history is. Yes, of course. Uh, John Fun, columnist for National Review. Check out his pieces both on the Flint case as well as uh, mail-in ballots that we were discussing. John, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. So keep on rocking me, baby. Keep on rocking me, baby. Keep on rocking me, baby. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And since our friend John Fun from National Review brought up Cook County and Illinois, let's continue. Illinois, New York, and California. So much attention on uh, those states, probably in uh, the order of New York, California, and then Illinois, because the nature of where celebrities reside and uh, the media that adores them and also the media that becomes them. But uh, Illinois is uh, increasingly an important case of the bad example. All three of these states are for various reasons, many similar reasons. Remarkable. Three of the biggest states in the nation with um, the uh, most political cachet governed by Democrat socialists and um, doing some very strange things, concerning things, one could argue. And here's how they respond to dissent. Uh, Give you an example. Governor J.B. Pritzker, at his uh, Tuesday briefing on uh, all things COVID-19 related, had this to say about those around the state of Illinois. It's a diverse place, just as New York State, California, diverse places. You have uh, communities even in those deep blue states, all three of them, defying the lockdown orders. We profiled uh, last week a clothier in New York City that was opening up and, you know, come and get me, basically, just as an example. But there are many, many examples. Litigation is moving in Illinois to state legislators have filed suit against the governor's shelter in place order. And we have actually an attorney general's opinion on that now, which I'll get to. But here's how the governor responds to those who disagree with the a draconian lockdown. The vast majority of those counties and individuals, those business owners, are not talking to epidemiologists. They're not talking to scientists. In fact, they're not relying on science in any way whatsoever to make their decisions. Um, I, I would just suggest to all of them that they are putting the patrons of their businesses uh, and the people who live in their counties or in their cities in danger when they simply break the rules, break the law, in fact, um, and uh, they you know, decide that they want to go it alone. Uh, we are one Illinois. We are one state. We have four regions for the Restore Illinois plan, and soon enough, regions across the state will have the ability to move into phase three. Mm-hmm. Phase three means gatherings of 10 in Illinois, uh, up to 10, and you know, partial reopening of retail. Uh, that soon will be June 1st at the earliest, the end of the month at the earliest. I mean, other than the Illinois particulars, could you not hear Andrew Cuomo or Gavin Newsom saying the same things? Isn't that what uh, politicians are saying in characterizing their opposition? I'm a science guy. I got top scientists, top men, scientists on this big data. And uh, well, you know, you've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land, the common clay of the new West, you know. Morons. Uh, they do a great Waco Kid impersonation, all three of them. Well, on this show, uh, we talk to all sorts of uh, public health professionals, epidemiologists, all sorts of doctors, experts uh, across the spectrum, experts in the space that J.B. Pritzker and the other governors are talking about, as well as in all of the other spaces that need to be considered to make as best public policy choices are as you can from the available choices, not the choices you wish you had, the choices you actually have. It's a remarkable statement, particularly in a state that's being governed by one man and illegitimately in Illinois, the General Assembly hasn't met in months. 
the uh, governor by statute could issue an, an emergency order for, for that has 30 days of effectiveness. And then the General Assembly in Illinois has to act. Well, he just extended for another 30 days. J.B. Pritzker's position is I can be the only rulemaker in the state, the only lawmaker in the state through executive action, 30 day successive executive orders in perpetuity. That's his position. That's been rejected by the chief of the Illinois State Attorney General's Office Opinions Bureau. Of course, it's been rejected. Why would the 30 days even be in the statute if the interpretation was it doesn't matter? I can just do it in 30 day increments forever and ever. Amen. It's a ridiculous position, but it's a position they're taking that has nothing to do with science and everything to do with political power, doesn't it? Santa Clara, California, Santa Clara County health officials asking people to find other ways to celebrate life's milestones than getting in a car and driving by someone's house. You've seen these, right, in the era of social distancing, birthday parties, graduation celebrations, which are happening now, uh, have been parades of cars that pass by the person's home that you're celebrating for birthday, graduation, marriage, whatever. Uh, Santa Clara County leaders say, even though no one is getting out of their cars during these types of celebrations, it's still a violation of the shelter-in-place order issued by county health officials. Is that science? Is that data? Or is that just political power? Is that just the imposition of politicians' will? And isn't it just a function of the political culture in the state in which you're in? Certainly there is not unanimity, but there are many examples that uh, happen at the local level that are representative of the political culture that you are more familiar with at the state level. And the accountability, where is it? Where is it in these states? This is uh, what Holman Holman Jenkins takes up in an an excellent piece about uh, Elon Musk, uh, essentially serving, speaking of California, uh, serving as uh, the de facto ACLU, since the ACLU apparently is no longer interested in people's civil liberties, as long as uh, you have a shutdown being driven by leftist politicians in blue states. You'd be hard-pressed to find a scientist anywhere who maintains we don't need to learn to live with the virus, writes Jenkins. Our incoherent lockdowns plainly lack the scientific rationale for how to op- how to reopen when most of the public remains uninfected. For some families, sheltering in place now appears to have increased their risk, then reduced it. For most of individuals, the danger was flu-like, which never before led to them being stripped of basic rights. Banning outdoor activities appears to have been absurd overkill. How about car parades? The notion that a vast testing and contact tracing scheme is plausible and can halt the epidemic, much less as a requisite condition to resume most of our economic freedoms, would fail uh, would fall to sixth grade math, start with the challenge of identifying millions of asymptomatic carriers among millions of others whose symptoms are due to the common cold or flu. That politicians took steps out of the out of panic is understandable that these steps were unjustified by the science that existed then, much less now, doesn't mean their motives were bad. We can accept, especially in a panic, that the media will eschew complexity in favor of a story of an enemy who must be vanquished. Right. I understand. Politicians do things out of fear and political expediency rather than mindfulness and consideration for others like their constituents. Uh, so stipulated, the media is full of mediocre intellects who were average at best students at J schools and can't do the sixth grade math that Holman Jenkins referenced. So stipulated. Here's the rub and the concluding paragraph of Holman Jenkins' excellent essay. 
Our country and our constitution are finished. If the most sweeping authoritarian and undemocratic restrictions on individual liberty ever contemplated are not subjected to legal challenge and accountability. And frankly, the lack of more legal challenges in New York and Illinois and California is concerning. The lack of any optimism for political accountability from the top down is even more concerning. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Nancy Pelosi sure has a strange way of asking for help, doesn't she? In an interview on C-SPAN, breaking down her so-called Heroes Act, you knew it was going to be trouble when it was named the Heroes Act. Uh, and by the way, the CARES Act, uh, also Orwellian, uh, no better. All the way, all these uh, terms for legislation, it's always in very high-minded, even if the actual substance of the legislation isn't. Here's what the Nancy Pelosi had to say about uh, any concern she has about the president's opinion on legislation that he would have to sign. Is the president part of these discussions, these negotiations? I don't I don't have any idea what the president does. He said that the House was on vacation. But you know what? Don't waste your time or mine on what he says, okay? We're, we're trying to get a job done for the American people. Don't waste your time or mine on what the president says or does, or apparently including him in conversations about something that you want to do and you and your caucus want to do, House Speaker Pelosi. Uh, although this is uh, DOA, as per the Republican response, that's not the real question. The real question is, what is it that Republicans would be willing to do if there was any give, for example, on the red line that Mitch McConnell drew for indemnification of businesses reopening during the COVID-19 uh, battle against uh, the COVID-19 uh, virus, I should say. For more on that topic, we're pleased to be joined by David Williams. He's president of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. David, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And what a strange comment by Speaker Pelosi. She doesn't know if the president was part of the negotiations. She doesn't have time. She doesn't have time to concern herself with the president of the United States. Uh, I I don't know. I guess she doesn't consider him an uh, integral part of uh, legislating. She called herself an appropriator. Just let the appropriators do what they do, appropriate other people's property. And uh, don't worry about the president. Um, I'm not sure if she's uh, planning a coup d'etat or what exactly. Well, wouldn't she know? That's a yes or no question that she was asked, and she couldn't even say yes or no, which is it's bizarre. But if you look at the at the bill, if you look at the Heroes Act, and you're right, these the names of these bills are ridiculous. They come up with these acronyms, uh, I guess, to make themselves feel better, maybe, because um, it doesn't make anyone else feel better. And we're looking at another $3 trillion. I mean, this is... You know, we're talking about trillions now. We're not talking about billions anymore. And I really don't want people to become numb to the the trillions because I think there's a risk of that, is that when you pass a $2.2 trillion bill a month ago and now you're talking about $3 trillion, 
is this the new norm? And if it is, that's very disconcerting for taxpayers. And so, um, you know, there are things in there that we, we know have been counterproductive, like the enhanced unemployment benefits that they want to extend beyond July all the way to January, which are encouraging people to stay off the sidelines, even if their former employers are getting back in the game because you're just making more on the sidelines. It's uh, it's, it's a disincentive to work, and we, we don't want that. But But, I mean, the reality is, right, this is not likely to go anywhere in its form as presented. The concern is, what is the sense of where Republicans are willing to horse trade? What will they tolerate uh, in terms of must-haves from Democrats? Well, that is a concern, and we're very concerned about, you know, this is the opening salvo in negotiations. And as much as the Senate has really held somewhat firm, right, when it comes to these relief bills. We don't know what the next one is going to be and what they're going to allow. So we're starting at $3 trillion. We're talking about $500 billion for states to cope with the coronavirus. That's just states, $375 billion for localities. So we're talking about almost a trillion dollars to, to bail out states and localities. And Here's the problem that I have with this. First of all, it's just a lot of money. Let's just get that out of the way quickly. Uh, but then what about states that were having financial problems before the pandemic? Are we going to reward states that have been performing poorly? And as you said, with unemployment, we're basically rewarding people not to work. So why would we reward states for having bad finances before the pandemic? I mean, there's so much wrong with this bill. It's just it would take us hours to <laughs> to digest it all. In a uh, this is a, a rather counterintuitive notion, but uh, Stephen Harper, the former PM of uh, Canada, advances it. All this spending is going to lead to a reduction in government. Um, we'll uh, tackle that with David Williams, president of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance, right after this. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show, and uh, as I mentioned before the break, Stephen Harper, former uh, conservative PM for the for uh, the country of Canada. Writes in uh, the Wall Street Journal, after the coronavirus, government will have to shrink. The government intervention in today's in the economy today is without precedent, he writes. So why doesn't this uh, herald a new age of big government? Simple. All this intervention has been economically ruinous. No amount of money can fully compensate for social distancing actions whose effect is to shut down large segments of the economy. Tens of millions have lost jobs. Many thousands have lost businesses. In most cases, compensation from the state is a fraction of what they were earning. And when the focus shifts from the pandemic to the economy, it will need to shift from a lot more government action to a lot less because uh, security will not be the priority. Survival, economic survival, thriving economically will be. 
and government is going to have to unwind all the things that it wound up and necessarily shrink as a result to pay for the um, borrowing effectively that's been done at every level. Do you do you buy that argument that all this spending will ultimately lead to government shrinking in the uh, medium term? I, I don't because I think that when you look at any sort of government expansion, it keeps on expanding. We, ne- we never see government shrink. The whole concept of you know, baseline budgeting, I don't want to get too boring here, but you know, when we increase a budget by 4% instead of 8%, people call that a cut. Well, no, that isn't a cut. Government is still growing and still expanding. And what I think is going to happen here is that people are getting frustrated with their states and the states that aren't reopening, especially the lockdown states such as Michigan and California, is that this is having the opposite effect is that governments think that they're, quote, taking care of people, but they're not. What they're doing is they've shut down business and millions of people are losing their livelihoods. This is going to backfire on these states. And, you know, it's really not exactly the swamp that President Trump talked about four years ago, but it is, you know, government intervention, and people don't like it. People ultimately want to be free and be able to live their lives without government control. This seems like a real moment for Mitch McConnell, a potential moment uh, that will be remembered for a long time, what he does, because he has all the leverage uh, as it pertains to one important feature of the discussion, which is bailing out uh, states and cities that have been bad actors for generations prior to uh, the breakout, the uh, the outbreak of the the virus, including his home state of Kentucky, when it comes to unfunded pension liabilities, um, he doesn't need any of the senators in those states uh, to be the Senate Majority Leader, which is most important to him. And he obviously is in position to kill anything that would come out of the House. And in perhaps Stephen Harper has one point here, because balance sheets in places like uh, at the federal level, certainly, but also in state big states like Illinois and California, New York, New Jersey are so bad and were so bad before the virus. If they don't get some level of absolution for their generations of bad public policymaking, then that will force a right sizing of government at, at some level in some way, because they will be uh, unable to continue in the way that they've been operating and so we'll bring a discipline that uh, is otherwise not going to come internally bring an external discipline. It seems like uh, Mitch McConnell has um, the real power, ironically, because I don't know that this is his calling card, to institute uh, some fiscal discipline in some of the uh, worst managed states in the country. He does. And, you know, I have been a critic of Senator McConnell in the past, uh, but what he is doing is really, you know, we talk about checks and balances He's been a huge check on the House of Representatives, which, you know, this is the second time that they're trying to do this. Uh, you know, the first time they wanted a, what, $80 billion bailout of the Postal Service. This time it's $25 billion. And, you know, all the other items are in, in this uh, HEROES Act. So he really has been the gatekeeper and making sure that no one walks through that gate of, of uh, excess spending. And, it's, and it can't be easy for him because – we're talking about states that do need the money, but again, it's what we talked about earlier. It's the disincentive uh, of these states, and you know these numbers just to me are, are mind-boggling. I I was looking at um, the Tax Foundation put out a breakdown of all of the the states and what they're going to receive. So the state of Maryland is looking at a 2.5 billion dollar shortfall for this year because of the pandemic. This bill would give them nine billion dollars 
So explain to me how a state can have a $2.5 billion shortfall and now right. be on a list to receive $9 billion. This, this doesn't make sense, and that's why, as you said, this bill is dead on arrival in the Senate. But it's also just it, there's no common sense behind this. This is a progressive wish list that Pelosi thinks is going to resonate with the American people. The other it thing- is not. It is not going to resonate with the American people. Well, right. And it, I think it will be you know, quickly forgotten because it's just not going to be given that much air because uh, of its immediate dismissal out of hand. Uh, and the other thing, uh, too, from Larry Kudlow over the weekend, which I think is an important tell, is Republicans seem inclined to slow walk this, too. I mean, we're nine trillion in. Let's take a breath. We've got states reopening. Let's take a breath here for a couple of weeks. Larry Kudlow saying, you know, we're not looking at a phase four deal uh, certainly before the end of the month. So the idea that this is going to get rushed through, they're going to carve it up, they're going to you know, cut it by half and then send it to the president's desk, that doesn't seem particularly likely. And obviously, the longer that you slow walk this and you wait to see how states are recovering that are reopening, uh, the more pressure uh, becomes applied to those states that have real problems prior to the pandemic they did. And uh, then that much pressure, much more pressure is going to be put on Speaker Pelosi. Right. And if you if you look at what Nancy Pelosi is doing, she is giving an excuse or a roadmap to keep the uh, economy closed. We need a roadmap to open up the economy. This does not do that. When you extend unemployment benefits until 2021, basically you're saying that we're preparing for the economy to be closed for a very long time. Let's find ways to open it up. And that's why you look at Texas, you look at Georgia, you look at Florida, these states that are slowly opening up. What I am curious to see is the unemployment rates. You know, we're going to see those numbers probably in the next few days or the next week to see those states, to see if those unemployment claims start dipping significantly because these states are reopening. And I think that's going to be the key to an ec- economic recovery is making sure that, you know, we can do this in a, in a way that, um, you know, ho- listen, some people aren't going to go, go back to work because they have small businesses that can't survive two months of being shut. I mean, that's just the un- unfortunate reality. But how much of an economic impact will this have? And I think we need to look to states that are reopening to see what the recovery is going to be. He is David Williams, president of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. David, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Erica Komisar writing in the uh, Wall Street Journal. She is a New York psychoanalyst, and we talked about, uh, in a serious way, the deaths of despair, the uh, projection by Wellbeing Trust, the study that was released that we discussed yesterday with uh, Dr. Allen from uh, formerly of Johns Hopkins Children's Hospital, projecting 75,000 deaths of despair, suicide, drugs, and alcohol. Erica Komisar writing in the Wall Street Journal about uh, aspect of that pot and booze in lockdown. Pot and booze are bad news. Yeah, probably um, not in lockdown. They're not great news either. Everything in moderation. Booze and pot can offer temporary relief and comfort, but this benefit is short lived and ultimately can be self-destructive, writes Komisar. Both can contribute to psychological distress, 
fatigue and even paranoia when right used uh, regularly and drinking is associated with domestic violence, which has been on the rise during this crisis is, has been noted. So pot is not medicine. It turns out as we uh, have to continually argue in this age of legalizing pot and pretending it has all these wonderful medicinal benefits, pot's a toxin, alcohol's a toxin. That's a reminder about that. I suppose she gives a couple of profiles on, on patients too, that have uh, sought uh, consultation with her trying to stop self-medicating to manage their depression or uh, their anxiety and isolation. She uh, writes, there's no panacea for anxiety and depression, the pandemic and its effects have caused, but alcohol and marijuana tend to make them worse rather than better, and in some cases will lead to an addiction that will outlast the virus. She actually argues, despite in most states, considering liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries, the states that have them, essential businesses, they should go the way of uh, Pennsylvania, that is, Pennsylvania closed its state liquor stores when it went into lockdown. Other states should follow its lead, Commissar says, and she also suggests the same with respect to marijuana dispensaries. I, I'm not I hate this essential, non-essential business, uh, just like essential, non-essential worker or person. All of that, that that nomenclature is just offensive to me. But uh, no, I don't I don't think we should shut down liquor stores. You know, I, like I said, everything in moderation, a bottle of wine uh, with your the dinner you pick up. Uh, from time to time is um, not a horrible thing, but I, I take her point and uh, policymakers should as well, particularly when you're in the business of designating what can and cannot maintain uh, business. Uh, instead of uh, looking to uh, substances to uh, pass the time, if you're in lockdown, uh, I've got a better idea. Uh, check out Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus. It's a documentary which presents convincing evidence. The biblical account of the Exodus is true. This is the work of investigative filmmaker Tim Mahoney, who searched the world over for answers to the important question, did the stories like Exodus, as written in the Bible, really occur? Uh, right now, you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, at home, along with the other movies in the series at PatternsofEvidence.com. There's other movies, include The Moses Controversy and The Red Sea Miracle. And uh, the opportunity to view them all can be obtained by going to PatternsofEvidence.com. That's where you can watch Patterns of Evidence, The Exodus, and the other movies in the series, PatternsofEvidence.com. Thank you for joining us on another edition of The Dan Prof Show. Appreciate your time and attention, and hopefully we'll have you back tomorrow. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is The Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.